0: Welcome to Ink's The Founder's Project with Alexa von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVast, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi everybody, I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel, and this week I want you to meet Ali Godsey, co-founder and CEO of Databricks, the data and AI company used by more than 5,000 organizations worldwide. Databricks is a unified data platform for data engineering, machine learning, and analytics, and most recently, announced their $1 billion Series G investment at a $28 billion valuation. Ali is responsible for the growth and international expansion of the company. He previously served as the VP of engineering and product management before taking the role of CEO in January of 2016. In addition to his work at Databricks, Ali serves as an adjunct professor at UC Berkeley and is on the board of UC Berkeley's RISE Lab and is an expert in research management, scheduling, and data caching. Ali holds an MBA and PhD in Distributed Computing. Let's welcome Ali. Hi Ali, how are you?
1: Good, good, how are you doing?
0: I'm I'm so excited to have you here and I've been following Databricks for a really long time, so I couldn't be prouder to have you on, on the show today. Let's keep it simple, let's go back. For everybody out there who's not an engineer or data scientist, what is Databricks in your own words for everybody who's maybe just learning
1: about it? Yeah, so what we do is we help enterprises take lots and lots of data and do artificial intelligence and machine learning on it to do predictions, that's, that's our mission.
0: So I wanna go back to your origin story. First, you guys were a bunch of really smart academics in computer science. There were many of you, which is pretty unique. You know, Sometimes there's two founders, sometimes there's three founders. There were almost half a dozen of you guys uh, thinking about this business. Um, and you really started as academics. Walk us back through those early days and tell us how your co-founders came together and what really got you guys to flip the switch from being academics to being like, okay, we're going to go build a business. Give us that story.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a very special time around that time. There was this lab, and the lab itself was also different from all the other labs everywhere else. They had decided to put all these different people into the same floor, remove all the rooms, and just have like an open floor seating. And they were going to mix people who did machine learning, mathematics, computer science, all kinds of different you know backgrounds together. And then they had them focus on what companies in Silicon Valley needed help with. So we were working on those kind of problems. And that was around that time that basically Silicon Valley for tech companies figured out that they could crack the code of machine learning. And we got sort of a front seat and we got to see how that was working. Uh, So that was kind of the beginning of it. And they basically figured out how to take machine learning algorithms from the seventies that everybody knew that they don't work And they were just about to make the magical and superhuman. So we got to see how that happened.
0: I want to go back because I remember um, Ben Horowitz, who, as everyone knows, co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz. He actually was also a guest on Founders Project when he was launching his book. Was an early believer and champion. What do you think he saw when he came to you guys where he was like, all right, I need to get involved with this business. I need to help you guys get going.
1: I think he had been involved. He had invested in another company called Nasera. And I think they had just sold that for I think $1.2 billion to VMware. And through some of those professors at UC Berkeley he had heard that, you know, they're these kids, they're pretty smart, they're onto something, you know, they've, they, I think they've built something really, really cool, you should come check it out. So he came around and at that time, all the rage in the market was this thing called Hadoop. Everybody was talking about Hadoop, it was big data and so on. And we had built this other thing, which was way faster, It was way easier to use it, and you could use it for machine learning. You could use it for real time problems. Uh, So we just did a demo and we told him, look, this is two orders of magnitude better in four dimensions. And he was kind of blown away. And I don't know if you understood all the details, but he said, this is, you know, I think this this has legs. These people are pretty smart. Maybe I should take a bet on them.
0: I, I love it. Let's quickly fast forward and then we'll rewind again. You're currently used by over 40% of the Fortune 500. Everyone out there listening, this business currently has almost half of the Fortune 500 as customers. When you think about that, how did you actually begin customer development? How did you figure out exactly how to interact with your first customers? And, you know, Ali, I sit here and advise companies all day long about that early strategy development with customers the ideation the understanding how it works can you walk us through what those first customers look like and how you ended up confirming product market fit
1: yeah so i actually think product market fit is really really difficult to get right and you know it's it's kind of like getting a you know music hit or a movie that's like a blockbuster a person that's really great at it might the next time fail so it's it's really an art and not really a science and i think databricks did it in a very different way from everyone else we kind of cheated And the way we cheated is we were at this research lab. We got to see the problems that these enterprises had. And we had many at-bats. So we got to try multiple times over and over. We built many, many projects at UC Berkeley. And then once one of them actually took off and it was kind of successful, then we kind of commercialized that. So I actually think that's like a really clever way of doing it because then you get to try lots and lots and lots of those. And clock is not ticking yet. There's no investors giving you money yet saying hey you need to get to a million revenue here for me so you get you get take your time and figure this out and that's what we did so we worked with these forward tech companies we solved the problems that they had and eventually we had a solution that was you know it seemed like it really had legs and that's when we started databricks
0: if we go back to some of those early customers again sometimes you go too small it's too startupy you go too big they're too enterprise and they require things from technology and security and regulatory environment that you don't have how did you size those first customers? How did you, and like, what mistakes did you guys make to end up narrowing in on the right product market fit?
1: Yeah. I mean, in the very, very early days, we were focused on SMBs and mid-market companies because they were the only ones that were ready to move to the cloud because we're hundred percent cloud company. Everything is in the cloud. The big enterprises would say, hey, we don't think the cloud is secure enough. We would never give you our data. So we started with SMB and mid-market companies and we, f- we focused on making them successful. And I actually think that's a good trick for startups to do, because what large enterprises will use is sort of what, you know, SMB companies were asking for five years ago, 10 years ago. So they're kind of the canaries in the coal mine. Uh, If you work with SMBs, they're sort of out there. They're taking more risk. They know the tech much better. So you build something for them. It will later become useful for enterprises as well.
0: What was hard about those early days um when you look back in the rear view mirror what, what was the thing that was the hardest for you guys to kind of knuckle
1: through i mean the hardest part for really tech-oriented companies that are really good at the tech and they have a lot of smart people is figuring out how to really scale go to market and once you have vcs on your board very soon they start focusing on what your revenue is and there's this pressure did you hit the number did you not hit the number what's your target going to be next year is that growing or not and it creates this massive stressor on the organization and you know you, historically you probably haven't done that so you're probably not good at selling and marketing and all those things you're a technologist I would say that's the kind of the thing that was in the background always stressing us out
0: let's talk a little bit about your co-founders I I believe there's a total of six of you right Yep. and that basically they said hey Ali why don't you become the CEO and founder and why don't you run the business what was that decision like how did you guys figure that out and what is it like to have so many co-founders what's the benefit of it that maybe we don't know or think about
1: having so many co-founders is a huge strength of databricks needless to say if you look at all these companies where the ceo co-founder is still running the company whether it's you know benioff at salesforce or Zuka at facebook or you know whatever those companies are those people are extremely important right they're extremely important leaders they know the company in a way no one else knows it. they've been there since day one and so on well databricks has seven of those people that are like that. Uh, so that's a huge strength of ours, right? So in every department, these people are working on those departments, the co-founders, and they have the full history. They feel like this is their baby. So that's honestly, one of the reasons we are successful is that we have seven people and there's immense trust. We're super aligned. So that's the great thing about it. The problem with it is you kind of have a little bit seven CEOs that can pop up at any given <laughs> moment and say, Hey, Hey, wait, 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 that's not how we do things here. Uh, you know, I disagree with that. So that's the thing that one has to sort of balance out.
0: You know, you guys have always had extremely strong technology. You know, you built your sales and marketing org up and last year you did 425 million in ARR or more than that. How did you actually think, let's go to like phase two of the business. So we talked about the origin days There were seven of you academic lab kind of said, let's go build this as a business. You kind of figured out early product market fit. As you hit the chapter of scaling and again at this point you've scaled to a remarkable level that most founders don't get the chance to ever get to. What did you learn? What was what was easy and what was hard as you started to really scale?
1: First and foremost, when I took over as CEO, the first thing I did is sort of admit that we haven't done this before. So let's get the pros here. When you have seven really smart people, they always try to figure everything out. And you know, with, with the kind of backgrounds we had, they're kind of fearless, right? So my seven co-founders, so the seven of us kind of felt like, "Hey, There's nothing we can't figure out ourselves and we should be able to do anything better than anyone in the world so i think the first thing was the realization that probably not when it comes to go to market we shouldn't reinvent the wheel let's just bring the pros in who have done this and that way we can move much much faster and not make as many mistakes as we would do if we're trying to figure everything in out and we're trying to innovate even in go to market in marketing in sales and all these orgs so really it was this intense journey to find executives who'd done this before who we could get along with who could help us scale as fast as possible that became sort of a mission i think i did 12 exec searches in two years so that was i think the sort of the beginnings of sort of starting to scale the company
0: what would you say is one of the things you learned that you would want to pay forward to other founders listening around hiring an executive what would you say were the one or two biggest lessons you had and like what do you swear by when bringing on a senior executive that you know is gonna be a good fit? Just tell us what you've learned.
1: Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say is if you've never done it before, it's gonna take you a long time to figure out what is it you actually want. Uh, this is the first, This is the problem, right? The, the problem is not, it's so hard to find the right person. The problem is you don't know what you want. You, have, you haven't done this before, so you don't actually know what you're looking for. You think you're looking for a great head of marketing, but you don't actually know. There are many different variants of those and they have different specialties. Uh, and you don't have the expertise. So how are you going to do that? That's the hardest part about it. And it's sort of a journey when you do these searches. You get to meet a lot of the different folks. You talk to the industry leaders. You slowly start to form an opinion. So it takes a long while for you to even figure out what you're looking for. Uh, so my biggest advice and the biggest learning is start much, much earlier. Start the search way before you need the person. Because if you're doing this for the first time, it's going to take you so long time to just figure out who you need, let alone finding that person that satisfied that need.
0: That's right, Um, Ali, I wish that you you and I were friends, you know, 10 years ago and could have given me that advice, because it's so true. You actually, you should go try to hire your senior team well in advance of you needing it, you know, three to six months, because it takes six to nine months. And then actually, once you get them in the door, it takes them another three months to get them fully up and operational. So starting early is important, and then trying to be as precise. What other one or two tricks, you know, when you were trying to figure out if somebody was going to be a good fit for Databricks, was there a question you ask? Is there a process, you know, element that you swear by to know if somebody is going to make sense for your business to
1: come and join? Since day one, we used to do these, you know, two, three hour sessions. We called them three, six, twelve plans, or you know, they could have different names, but really essentially it was a session where we had the exec come in and present to the whole team. But then we were super interactive and we sort of debated. What they're presenting, we debated each other. We kind of, as a team, were for three hours spending time with that exec, and I think that was really important because you could see: do they fit in? Do they fit in with our culture? Do they get along? Do they do they like our approach? You know, the way we're asking questions and we're sort of questioning things—is that going to rub them the wrong way? And then usually, if we could, we also would take them out to dinner. You know, so you you do this—you're spending many, many hours together as a team, so you get to kind of see them in action. The other thing I would do always, I wouldn't tell them this, I would find as many excuses as possible to call them up. And then when I call them up, I would go through something that I'm struggling with today. Like they would say, hey, Ali, how are you doing? How are your day going? It's going well, I'm just, you know, I'm struggling with this thing. Then I would kind of run real problems by them and see, is this a person I can work with? Can we work through problems together? Uh, So that you're not just evaluating their brain of the presentation or, you know, their CV, you're also figuring out, can we work together? Do we get along? Can I really, like, are you someone I can kind of gel with and brainstorm with, or we're just completely oil and water? I
0: love that. By the way, I've never heard that advice. And I really love that, which is the, like, you know, haphazard, going to make a few phone calls, run problems, by on the fly, get a sense of how you think on the fly, unprepared, unstaged, and more importantly, like, can we actually have a good working relationship where we can have fun together? I like that one. I'm definitely going to steal that one. Um, I, I I think that's great.
1: Do I like you, right? Yeah. If we really don't like each other, and that's okay. Not everybody loves each other, right? If we don't really like each other, we probably shouldn't, you know, be working a startup uh, in in the same team, you know, 10 hours a day, working through really difficult problems for five years. It's probably not a good idea if we fundamentally kind of don't like each other.
0: As you fast-forward a decade, just where is the world headed? And if you had to give us two to three predictions that are just extremely obvious to you, what are those?
1: Yeah, so if you think of it this way, if you take Google, you know, you might think of it as a search company, but so was AltaVista, so was uh, you know, Bing.com and so on. So what made Google so special? Why are they the kind of company they are today? It's how they leverage AI and data in a really strategic way. Same thing is true about Facebook. Same thing is true about Amazon and so on and so forth. Those companies are using AI throughout the whole organization. Everybody's using machine learning. Everybody's using data in a super strategic way in these kind of companies. That's not true about the rest of the 99.99% of the enterprises out there. They might have one data team with some data scientists in it, but it's not the case that the whole organization is leveraging in data AI in a super strategic way. uh, And that's the essence of that company. Uh, 10 years from now, that's going to be the case. Every company is going to be that way. You know, and they're all going through that journey of becoming that. And that's going to transform what they do. And this kind of intelligence is going to creep into everything they do in every department. It doesn't matter what job you have. You might think, oh, I'm, I'm just in support. So that's that fancy AI stuff doesn't have anything to do. No, you know, the support tickets are going to get automated. A lot of that's going to become much more intelligent. You might be in marketing. No, that also, it's becoming a sort of AI game. You might be in sales. You might be any department you're in, finance. Uh, you're going to see AI creep in everywhere, into the software, into what they do. And I think people don't quite realize the transition that basically the whole planet is going to go through in the next 10 years to become that.
0: Let's go deeper there. What are the consequences of that? And what I mean by that is, what does it look like? You just said AI is going to creep into sales. It's already creeping into marketing. It's going to creep into finance. Practically, what does that mean? What does that look like? How is that evolving our businesses? How does it change them?
1: A lot of it has to do with software. So Mark Andreessen famously said that software is eating the planet, right? Uh, I would say AI is going to eat all software. So wherever you have software, you might have it on your phone, on your app, on your computer. You know, we, we we interact with all these devices everywhere, right? And it's software running on a piece of hardware. That software will be much much more intelligent. It's gonna it's gonna be able to do things. It's gonna kind of know what you're about to do and it's gonna do it for you. Maybe it'll initially recommend it, but eventually it will make the decision. So a lot of things where you're making decisions or you're actively doing something in your job or you're in life, it's gonna do it for you and it knows what you're gonna do based on pattern recognition and pattern matching that it's done uh, for you already. And that's gonna change the shape of jobs that people have and the jobs that they do every day because a lot of the jobs that they're doing, the tedious parts of it will be automated away. And I think that's a good thing. They'll free up everybody's time to focus on the kind of stuff that this AI cannot do.
0: What are the things that AI can't do today? What are the things that that are obviously going to go away and that people should stop and spending their time learning?
1: Yeah, AI is really, really good at give it a very sort of structured problem. These are the rules and it's you need to maximize something or do something just based on these very basic rules. That's why it's so good at playing games. You know, that's really its forte because those are really simple rules. You get a score. And its goal is to maximize the score based on these four or five moves that it can make. Where it's really bad is when it comes to sort of judgment, context, wisdom, those kind of things. Like this interview you're doing with me right now, a lot of it is you're figuring out what's interesting that Ali just said. Where should I go deeper? You know, which direction do I want to take it? It can't do those kind of things. It it doesn't have judgment to do that. Uh, It can just, you know, what it can do really well is it can summarize our conversation really, really well. Uh, you know, in one page, in one paragraph, in 20 pages, it can fix all of the sort of quirks of my language and so on. Those (laughs) things it can do, right? But it can't apply judgments. And that's what humans are really good. So people that are afraid that it's going to sort of one day replace humans and, you know, it's going to come and kill us all and so on. That's not going to happen because it can't actually, it doesn't have a consciousness. It can't actually reason about its environment. It can just do repetitive tasks really, really well.
0: Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. As you think about the future of Databricks, um, what are you most excited about?
1: I mean, I'm super excited to help all these enterprises make that journey that I talked about. It's sort of a battle that's going on right now. If you look at the four tech companies, the ones that I mentioned, the FANG companies that use data and AI super strategically, they were sort of born digital. But all these other 99% that I'm talking about, they've been around a long time. They're not born digital companies. And there's this battle, which is these existing companies that have been around for 40 years, 50 years, are they going to figure out how to do this well, or are they going to be replaced by some new tech company that starts up tomorrow and replaces them? And we're trying to help the existing companies, give them the technology, the processes, and educate them so they can do that. So helping those enterprises do that, I think it's sort of a revolution that's happening on the planet. I'm excited to help them do that. I think it's going to change the face of the earth. So it's going to be huge impact. People don't quite realize yet how much it's going to, how pervasive it's going to be in the future. So I'm super excited about that.
0: I, I love that. Um, Ali, I want to switch a little bit to you. Um, so First of all, you're a really special individual who's already lived many versions of life. Your family fled Iran for Sweden when you were just five years old. Tell us a little bit about growing up and how do you think that prepared you to be a better entrepreneur?
1: Yeah, you know, we had to move around quite a bit and change environments quite a bit, move between different cultures, different countries, different religions, different sort of value principles and so on. And so, you know, as a kid, I think the advantage is you get thrown into these new environments where the rules are kind of changing on you all the time. And initially it's hard because every time there's a change of rules, I used, to, you know, I used to remember, I used to tell myself as a kid, every time there's a new school, new environment, it's like, okay, here we go. It's going to be a lot of conflict. It's going to be really, because everything changes and nobody knows anyone and you don't have trust with anyone. So you're in a new environment. But I think it's really awesome training, especially for the CEO job or for being in companies. Uh, because as a CEO, you're sort of, you're managing all these different departments that are very different culturally, you know, marketing is very different from engineering, from sales, from finance. So it kind of prepares you to deal with many different constituents, stakeholders, even outside the company. So I think that was actually an, an advantage for us moving to Sweden and, you know, moving around so much, it prepared you for being able to sort of move between these different cultures.
0: I love that. And, and many times I've said CEOs have to thrive among chaos. And what I like about that is you've just edited. Did you always know you were an entrepreneur? Or was this like a big context shift where you were an academic and said, okay, let's go do this? Or was this maybe a little bit of a voice inside you for a long time that finally just got the attention that it needed?
1: I mean, I was 100% set that I'm going to be a professor or academic. You know, I was doing that for 10, 15 years. That's, and I was you know, I I was good at it, to be honest. And I thought that's my call in life. Uh, You know, you're truth seeking, you're solving these problems. But then, you know, then I realized that actually, there's a big difference. And there's this whole other universe that I'm missing out on. So it kind of changed my mind after I, I took this job. Which I was skeptical of initially.
0: You're now running a company that's raised, you know, north of two billion in venture funding and has hundreds and hundreds of employees. And, you know, it, it's amazing to think that this wasn't something you truly sought out, um, and that you're doing such a great job of it. Um, what lessons do you feel like you've learned through this that if you were gonna pay for it to your best friend who's starting a company that you would say, here are the three or four things you just have to swear by. Um, what what are they for you? And what do you feel like you've learned?
1: Yeah, it's really hard to build trust and it's really hard to find really, really stellar leaders that you can build trust with and build the company with. I mean, that's why I'm saying I'm so blessed that I have so many co-founders that I work well with and also the exec team that that we have at Databricks. I think that's the hardest part. You know, you can many things You can scale by just getting more funding and hiring more people and expanding here and there, adding more customers. But in any company, there's some really critical people that end up having really outsized uh, impact and importance to their department. And how do you find those people? How do you build trust with them? How do you get into a mind melt that, you know, the 10 of you can build that company together? That's just so hard to come by. And once you find them, how do you keep them there and keep them happy? Because if they're that good, they might have other good opportunities and they want to go off and do the next thing and maybe they, they want to do your job you know and maybe that's the right thing for them but it's certainly not great for your company so that's you know focus more on that instead of trying to focus so much on making smart decisions which is the thing that i think most executives are obsessed with what's the smart decision for me to do here should i go left should i go right which one is better let's make sure we go in the right direction rather than focusing on bringing in those leaders that you're going to build trust with over the next decade
0: I really like that, and I want to I want to repeat that because I've never heard somebody say that. Which is, most CEOs think their job is I have to make this decision or this decision or this decision. Which way should I go? And you're saying don't. That's not what matters. What matters is obsessing over bringing in A plus people who you form extreme trust with, that stay at your company and continue to make good decisions. That's a really interesting shift, Ali. And I've never heard somebody say it so clearly. Um, do you feel like you just came to learn that decision? Or do you feel like intuitively just the build trust with a plus people and keep them at your business is the smartest way to actually build something that scales.
1: Well, it was not intuitive for me, but you know, after almost a decade, you look back you can see, you know, you start pattern matching. What what's the really hard part? Uh, how do you really scale things? And that's the really on, only way to scale is to find that team that you trust. If you have that trust and you have that great exact team of those great leaders, you can make this, solving the hard problems much easier because you can as a group then solve those problems and you don't have to alone solve them. Whereas let's take another type of company. Let's say in a company where you haven't been able to crack the code to find that team, you don't really trust each other, uh, but you yourself are you're really, really smart and you're focusing on making the right decision every time. It won't scale, you won't get agreement in that team and you can't be all over the place. So Trust in an exec team is really what enables you to scale it out and sort of delegate those decisions and you can together then be much smarter.
0: Being a CEO is really hard, right? You're running at, at, it it truly is. It's the only job, I say this every, every single episode, it's the only job that as you get better at it, it gets steeper. The learning curve gets steeper. The complexity of the business gets steeper.
1: It's the worst job that you'll ever love, they say, right? The worst job that you'll ever love.
0: I've actually never heard that one. I love it. It's the worst job that you'll ever love. That's so nope. great. What have you learned that keeps you sane through it? Is it sleep? Is it exercise? Is it family? Is it meditate? Like, what do you do to keep yourself grounded and stable through a really tough job that has a lot of big curves thrown at you?
1: I think after a while you realize to, you know, zoom out. And look at the big picture and get perspective. So I think perspective helps a lot, especially as co-founder and CEO, you, you get so stressed out about these things. And if things are not going the right way, you're so upset. It's your baby. And you know, we gotta do it this way. And it's like you blow things up. But if you zoom out in the big scheme of things, a lot of stuff doesn't really matter. So I think that's actually the most helpful thing to do. And there's a bunch of things you can do to, you know, help with that. I mean, you know, people say you have to exercise, you have to do this. Those are tricks I use to kind of get perspective, to zoom out, sleep on it, do something else, uh, to come back next day and say, you know, maybe it's not such a big deal. In fact, maybe it's even good to do it this way. So that's that's what I try to do. I try to get some distance to the problems that we have that, that doesn't sort of completely occupy your brain and stress you out.
0: You're so soulful. I like want to hang out with you because I feel like I would (laughs) Um, have you always been this soulful? Like, is this just been like if I if I rewind, you know, 30 years and look at you as a child, like is is this how you've always been?
1: No, I mean, this job changes you a lot. Right. It's it's as you said, it's a difficult job. And if you and if it's a high growth startup, you go through these so many phases and it goes so quickly and there's so many challenges thrown at you that uh, you start reflecting over, you know, how, how do we how do you stay sane? So no, that was not, you know, in my previous life as an academic, you focus on basically three things. Find a difficult problem, crack the code better than anyone else and solve it, and then write it up in a paper and communicate it to other researchers, and then rinse and repeat. Just do that for decades.
0: If you have to think and reflect upon what you're most proud of, um, most proud about at Databricks, what was like the moment where you said, wow, I can't believe that just happened. I, I can't believe we accomplished that. What was it?
1: I think it's the changes that we made. You know, most companies start with the awesome product or product market, a defined product market fit at some point, and then they start scaling that. But what we started with at Databricks is very, very different than what we have today. So we made some really difficult pivots and changes over time. I'm proud of those because those are hard to pull off. You know, it's like kind of change of direction and you got to get everybody on board and you have to do it and pull those off. That's what I'm most proud of. And we've done it many times.
0: Ollie, having been able to sit here uh, and, and, and spend time chatting with you, it's clear to me that you're a rapid learner. It's clear to me that you're somebody who's constantly focused on getting better. Is there a book or was there a moment or was there something that you did in Rewind that made you better that you would want everybody to know about or pay it forward to somebody? Was it a book? Was it a podcast? Was it a person? Was it a practice? Because it's clear to me that you have been very focused on constantly refining your skills. Um, so what would, what would you tell somebody starting a company today that they should keep doing?
1: Yeah, read all the books that are, you know, in every department. There's a lot of sort of, if you take an executive, that's in marketing. And if you push them hard on what they really know, a bunch of it is experiences. But a bunch of them was also a few books and a few concepts that actually kind of formed their thinking and they have it still with them. read all of those so i spent a lot of time reading pretty much you know books on marketing and sales you know executives and so on and that way you can sort of pick up a lot of the published material out there and i think that way i was able to sort of fast forward i didn't have the experience i didn't have 20 30 years of experience it was honestly was the first company i was working at before that i'd only been at universities so uh, i didn't really know even these departments like what does marketing really do what's the management what's the difference you know i had to go google those terms uh so read the books on the there's always some best book in that area go read it uh, and learn it the other thing that i learned that really helped me was you know you would look at really awesome companies and you would say wow they're so awesome and we're not there and you know i would agonize over that and say kind of like you know maybe maybe that's our problem like we we won't be as good as those companies are but then after a few years you learn that actually uh, a lot of problems will solve itself with time So you don't need to be perfect right now. Like you're a startup. It's not going to be perfect. A lot of things are broken. These companies that are really well-oiled machines, it took them two decades to get there. So you have time. You have many decades. So take the kind of long perspective on these things, slowly start to build strong HR muscle, slowly start build a great recruiting machine that recruits really well, you know, how it does... performance management on the employees or how you do sales and so on you have time like you can you know as long as the company is surviving that itself gives you time to keep refining and improving it these companies weren't awesome like these big companies today if you go back when they were 100 employees they were not what they are today things were broken they were making mistakes they didn't know what they were doing but they had an awesome product that was selling
0: yeah. Um, by the way, I'm just laughing. I want to make you a sweatshirt or a hoodie that you said like academics do it better because I'm just realizing you've never had a job until this. Like you have always been an academic and now you're crushing it. Uh, and it's just such an amazing transition. When I really step back and process that. I want to ask you two last quick questions. Um, this is sort of our quick fire round. If we fast forward uh, two years, how many days a week do you think the population's in an office?
1: Something like two or three.
0: Got it. What gets you out of bed in the morning if you have to look at your week and think about the thing that gets you most excited, that has sustained you, what is it?
1: Being able to make a change, like making that change or impact, not just doing the usual grind and repeat, rinse, repeat. So some sort of like big impact, whether it's like this week, big change or in the big picture of things.
0: Got it. Okay. I'm adding one more. If you want to pay it forward to anything, a product, a startup, an app, a new business that you just learned about in the last six months of COVID that you're excited about, what would it be?
1: I mean, there's lots of great startups in the data space that are doing awesome job like Fivetran. And I think they're great. You should check them out and use them.
0: I'm gonna check them out right after this. Ali, this has been such a pleasure. And I feel like if I had two more hours with you, I would I would actually maybe change my whole life. So uh, I'm, I'm bummed I don't get more time. Um, but I have to sincerely say, thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody out there, if you aren't already using uh, Databricks, check it out. If you're a big company and you're not using Databricks, check it out. And thank you so much. Join us next week on Inc. The Founders Project with Alex von Tobel. And Ali, sincerely, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.